Welcome to Share the Love Stories with me, the Reverend Amelia Arthur. Share the Love Stories is a podcast about sharing the love because love is the foundation of the gospel. Love for God, love for neighbor, love for self, love for family, friends, and all of creation. This podcast is a place for people to share their stories about what love means, and I hope it will bring you joy. In episode two, we continue our conversation about foods of obligation with my special guest, the Reverend Dwayne Nettles. Let's listen as we pick up where we left off in episode one. We have an interrupter. Oh, do we have an interrupter? Oh, it's Mr. Arthur. Hello. He's very flat. Do you have an ascot today or something? No, I see. I think it's a turtleneck with the flannel, and I thought I looked very like (laughs) 1970s villain chic, and I've been told it is not a good look, is what I've been told. Well, I wouldn't say villain chic. I would say Minnesota chic. Uh, So, uh, or Canadian. Oh, you know, maybe or Canadian chic. You could be from uh, uh, Toronto uh, for sure. You could do that. Yeah, Ooh. Ottawa. Don't you know you're from Ontario, right? Oofta. 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 <laughs> that's not, that's <laughs> are you uh, are you sipping on apple brandy down at the fireplace? Oh yeah, I'm eating Snicker salad. <laughs> Wait, what is that? So Snicker salad is a Minnesota dish. We're talking about talking about possibly another food of obligation. Talking about food of obligation. <laughs> yes. Um, it is basically whipped cream and little chopped up Snickers bars and all sorts of other things mixed together, and that is served uh, as a side dish for main meals. How did you learn this? Uh, because my secretary was talking about Snickers salad, and I said, "What the hell is a Snickers salad?" <laughs> yeah. So, are you all going to have Snickers salad this year, Mike? No. Are you going to bring that to the table to go no. on the side? My, my secretary did say that um, she and her whole family have lutefisk uh, every every Thanksgiving and Christmas, and they don't like it. The mom likes it, but that's just something that they have to have, and it wouldn't be Thanksgiving or Christmas without lutefisk on the table. And they all eat it? No. The mom eats it. Oh. Because nobody really wants fish cured in lie, but, you know, yeah it sounds a lot like salad. yeah i see i didn't like pretzels with jello but my grandmother made it and she was very excited about it so i ate it because i grew up that you if my grandparents served it i ate it well the lutefisk is bought i don't think they make it themselves whereas i do eat uh congealed salad when i'm with my mother-in-law very good mike Right, which is which is the food of obligation we're gonna get to. Yeah. When I have I have one more question for you about your family time together. And then that save that the apple brandy for me, Mike. He hey, he said sip the apple brandy for him. Oh yeah, ufta. <laughs> yeah, we're we're fully embracing. Okay, there's so many tangential directions I can go right now. We're fully embracing the fact that we live in Minnesota. Um, yes, also, also one topic of conversation we're going to get to is, do you know this musician from Canada that was, uh, like cool in the seventies and eighties, Stan Rogers? No. How is somebody named Stan Rogers? Cool. No offense to the Stans and the Rogers of the world. Yeah. Well, so, okay. So we'll get to that. But so, um, so here's my <laughs> question about all those people in this one house 
you know, eating all this food, including this pretzel jello salad. So you kind of were getting to it that you were saying, you know, they love to laugh. It was really jovial maybe, but um, so yeah. So like what did love look like for that particular part of your family of origin? Like, Oh, I think it's, I think it's at the very beginning of the story, which is that um, Christmas, Thanksgiving, Easter could all be moved so that the whole family could be there yeah. because love to my grandparents that I really get from them is it's showing up. Yeah. It, it is, it is uh, incarnational. Uh, if we want to use the, 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 yeah. uh, the let's, let's theological go word, right? Yeah. It is incarnational. It is showing up. It is being there in the flesh. Um, I come from a family uh, that, uh, that the men, um, you hug, you kiss each other on the cheek. Uh, that was always the case. I can still uh, feel my grandfather's whiskers. It didn't matter if he had shaved, like 30 minutes yeah. prior, he had whiskers. And of course he had gone gray by the time he was in his thirties. And as anybody who uh, developed some gray whiskers on their face they know it's it is the ultimate sandpaper uh, our gray mm -hmm. whiskers and his whole beard was gray and uh and whiskery and uh i don't think that's a word but i'm gonna use it and so sure. um uh, and so it, it it was it's showing up it's being there um they were the kind of people that my grandfather um my grandparents woke up about the same time but my grandfather was the one that that made it out of the bedroom first and he, the first thing he would do is uh, in his robe is he would walk to the front door of their house, unlock the door, obviously, go out, pick up his uh, Times-Picayune paper and uh, walk back in the house and he didn't lock it. And uh, the door was locked again uh, around dinner time. Nice. And anyone just, uh, you only knocked or rang the doorbell one time. And from then on, they would instruct you that you just walked in. And some inevitably people would think that they were just being polite. And my grandfather who had this deep bass voice um, would, would, would very much kind of scold you if you made him answer the door a second time. You knew by the third time that you could just walk through the door. Nice. And, uh, and you would, you know, and uh, who knows? I mean, depending on the time of day where you would find them. I mean, gardening, uh, they both love to garden and uh, you could often find them in the garden um, or uh, my grandmother sewing or my grandfather doing woodworking in the mm -hmm. garage. But they loved for people to show up and uh, they were always ready to feed them. So both my grandparents cooked. Uh, my grandfather was the 10th uh, uh, child out of 12. Wow. And so he's very close to his older sisters and to his mother. And so in fact, when my grandparents got married, my grandfather knew how to cook, which is pretty extraordinary for 1941. My grandfather was the cook my grandmother, we discovered her recipes from back then, included boiling a hot dog. And it included like to fill the pot with so much water and to bring, you know, like the <laughs> process of making a hot dog was on, an, on a recipe card. By the time I knew my grandmother, she was a very good cook. But apparently uh, my aunts and uncles assure me that that was not always the case. It was, uh, it definitely took her quite some time to get to that point. But, so they would spend days leading up to a holiday get together. Uh, baking everyone's favorite, uh, you know, like I loved mincemeat pie. I always have. 
And so uh, my grandmother would make a mincemeat pie for me and for my Aunt Judy and for herself because we were the three. So there were three mincemeat pies. And, um, and so were some they, things were like- Were they like little? Like No, no, my grandparents didn't do anything little. They had three refrigerators <laughs> and three freezers. So no, my, like a normal city lot, like your property lot, my grandfather had a garden that size. They didn't do anything small, these people. So, right. um, so they, they loved uh, family and friends. They loved getting, and getting together and uh, inviting people. And, um, and so, but they made everybody's favorite. So whatever your favorite was. So if it was a cake, then they might just make like a large cake uh, of it. And then they would split that up among people. But if it was a pie, my, my brother always got a, a full pumpkin pie. That was his pie. You could take a slice out of it and then eat the rest of it when he brought it home. And, um, and so, and all the different uh, dishes, it, it was, it, there was um, sausage uh, in one cornbread dressing because some of the in-laws didn't like uh, seafood and some of the grandchildren didn't, but then there was always this dark um, oyster dressing that my grandmother mm. made that all of the ingredients yeah. went through the food mill um, the meat grinder. Yeah. So the carrots, everything were these tiny and you would cook it mm. till it was like this darkened roux color. Yeah. Um, and, um, and so, yeah, there were, there were all these various foods, but then there was, so there was that, that salad, there was the, uh, the broccoli and uh, raisin with mayo mm. uh, salad, which I actually love to this day. Um, yeah. When I can go to a, like, if I can go to like a cafeteria, you can you can be <laughs> sure to find that with all yeah. the other old people who are in their 80s and 90s <laughs> and, and me getting the salad. I mean, that's why you raisin. are so good with all of your like 90 year old parishioners. <laughs> right. Because y'all right. can go to the cafeteria together. <laughs> right. Right. And we can have the broccoli raisin salad together. But that's that. But going back, I, I digress uh, with it. Is that but the. But love was showing up. Love was really tangible. Mm -hmm. It was, uh, it was, it was uh, really doing these kind of thoughtful things for one another. My grandfather grew up in absolute poverty. And so <clears throat> my grandmother very much adopted his family um, and very much was much more of a nettles than she was uh, a two juice or a loat, which was her family um, in so many ways. And so because out of that poverty, you did not buy things for people. Mm. Um, everything, they were, um, it was handmade. Uh, my grandparents' den was full of all the tchotchkes that had been made um, by at various points. So the, the melted bead art hung um, that one of the grandchildren had done. And, and so there were all these... Uh, touching moments the Christmas tree always had an orange light there was a string of those large bulb colored lights mm -hmm. and there was yeah. um, and my grandmother would remove one from a very prominent like middle position on the tree and she had this little box like little jewelry box with a tissue paper um, that had uh, the one of those large light bulbs that had been painted orange by my father when he started doing car models okay and he and this thing lasted for, it only went away when there was a fire in the house and she lost all the Christmas decorations. 
Uh, but for 40 years, this light bulb kept turning back on for 40 years straight. And then would at the end of the Christmas season, we'd get, uns get unscrewed and put back in the box. These were the things that she loved the like Christmas cone art. Uh, I mean, the pine cone art that we had made as grandchildren one year and that went on the tree. And so the, the tree just hung with all of this homemade ornaments and decorations. And so like cooking, you know, everything that was put out were things that people loved. Right. Uh, that all of that was an act of love, right? Like to put all of that together every year, whether you're talking about right. decorations on the tree, you know, opening the tissue box, right? To put that light bulb or making yes. those foods that were just these taste memories, you know, um, that all of that, I mean, it, what strikes me as you're talking is that it seems like during this pandemic, um, at our best, those are some of the things we're recovering, right? Oh, like yes. That at our best, like we're recovering, like cooking together, you know, doing, doing a family game night or craft night or, you know, what have you, right? But like that we're recovering this idea of like the being together and like these things that become this act of love because it's about like the joy and the storytelling and the laughter and not really about whether like the perler bead angel is really that beautiful. Right. <laughs> right. Mean, like the whole tree came together to be beautiful. But honestly, if I describe it in individual segments, you'd go like, wow, orange lights. That's special, right. you know, uh, but when it all came together, it was this, you know, yeah. beautiful tree of love. Yeah, that's amazing. Have you ever read that Truman Capote story, A Christmas Memory? No, I feel like I need to. Uh, I'm. I'll. I'll. I'll send it to you. It's. It's okay. one of the best. But the the description of the, um, this the great aunt and the little boy sitting at the kitchen table with, you know, paper and string and glue and glitter. You know, making like the tin foil stars and the angels. And but you know, it sounds like that, right? That it's like it's yeah. it's the the creating these handmade um, expressions of love that then continue year after year. Um, uh, yeah, I, as I got older, I would go over to my grandparents as, school, as soon as school let out and I would stay there. Um, and um, leading up to whenever we were gonna celebrate Christmas and I would help my grandparents. Uh, the first step was to my grandmother, the, she never could organize anything. There were always stacks of things, but it was always very clean. I mean, mm -hmm. to the point like you flipped over the chairs and you had to dust the bottom of a chair, you know? Right. And so we would do this like thorough cleaning of the house and um, uh, to get ready for everybody coming. And of course people were staying in the various bedrooms and such. So we would get all of that prepared. And then I would help them start uh, preparing for the meals, you know, gr grinding everything that needed to be ground for the oyster dressing. Or they would also, they baked, a, an, um, everybody got a um, Texas gallon, you know, one of those five quart things of ice cream, the, the, like the five quart ice cream comes in, yeah. the vanilla ice cream. Mm -hmm. They would save those throughout the year. 
because everybody in the family got one of those filled with uh, the cookies that they loved. Uh, so I'd have amazing. cookies as well as like chocolate chip and other things. And my grandmother made butterscotch because my brother loves butterscotch. And so he Great. got the butterscotch, you know, and, <laughs> um, and so, uh, and so yeah, every, you know, and so they were doing all of that leading up to it. And there was, there was, you know, and so the whole preparation for it, um, I was really fortunate to live close to them. And mm-hmm. so I, ha- I have as many memories from the preparation as I do from the actual event. And then what's really been cool over the years is, my, you know, my brother calling me up and going, how did grandma make the butterscotch cookies? And letting him know that it came off the back of the Toll House cookie bag. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, totally. <laughs> he didn't necessarily have a special recipe. It was the one that everybody else in America was using. Uh, but there were some tricks that she used when she was making them. Um, but, but the recipe just came off the, the back of that. I can remember his like, wait, what? It's not some special family. I was like, no, you were the first one that liked butterscotch in the family. She took it off the back of the butterscotch bag. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we can like you, butterscotch, but my can brother Can you imagine has the bubble that's a burst though, when that conversation happens, right? That there's, oh, yes. this, like, there's this cookie that has probably been, you know, idolized oh. right like it's like oh grandma's <laughs> cookie where did she get the recipe tell me how to make it oh it's literally on the back of the toll house you know butterscotch <laughs> <Yes>. morsels you know <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um but because here's she the- didn't know how to cook so she had to get recipes from right everybody and everywhere she didn't well and, and i'm really convinced too though that you you know even with the rise of kind of um uh, you know, just the change, I guess, of habits, right, around cooking and about just, um, like, kind of commercial food preparation, just in terms of the fact that we can buy the, you know, the butterscotch morsels with the Toll House recipe. You know, I am yeah. convinced, though, that those recipes capture something that that was really right about what those foods needed to taste like. You know what I mean? Like, like our family's recipes, at least in my family too, are a lot of these post-World War II recipes like casseroles that, you know, people could make from, you know, the classic, right? The green beans with the cream of mushroom soup with, you know, the French's French fried onions, right? I mean, it's like everyone's family makes that. Oh my goodness. You know? I have to say, I'm the only, I think both my parents' families are the only families that don't make the green bean casserole. Of course. And the first time I came into interaction with the green bean casserole, I was like, what is this thing? And then I like, I thought that like this was some one off in that family. And then I discovered, no, in fact, we're the oddballs. I think like (laughs) we're the two families that don't make it. Well, because you have your pretzel jello. So (laughs) I mean. An ambrosia salad. My other grandmother made ambrosia salad. I love oh, ambrosia salad. I do too. My grandmother used Speaking to make of old that. people. What? Oh, I love it. Speaking of old people. We are old people. Oh yeah. No, for oh, sure. Yes. My grandmother used to make that. I loved it. And I swear my mom can recreate that recipe and it doesn't taste as good as it did sitting in my grandmother's kitchen, like at her kitchen table. You know how when people used to have mm-hmm. like formal dining rooms and then in the kitchen, they'd have kind of like the supper table, right? For like- right the family just to eat or whatever, you know, sitting in my grandmother's, um, coral, uh, like kind of coral pink and white 
you know, 1950s kitchen at the kitchen table and, um, uh, and like eating these cups of ambrosia from these kind of milk glass, little like saucers is just this taste memory that I, you know, it's like it, you have to be in the place almost right to recreate. Right. Um, yeah. Ambrosia salad will never taste as good as it did on Academy Drive. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. But you know what's fascinating about that is that, and this gets to the to the theological, uh, is that those foods, even when they're somehow a little off, because Grandma did something that she just right. you unless you just stood there and watched her year after year, you almost can't capture. But is that nevertheless, uh, I think of a couple of years back that I was at, uh, we went on Christmas day and had, uh, the kids were younger and they wanted pizza. So we went to Dominica pizza and, um, I sit down and, uh, we always get a salad course and, uh, look at the salads and they have a shaved Brussels sprout with, uh, uh, with raisin salad. So it's basically a Brussels sprout take on the, the traditional broccoli and raisin salad. And I literally teared up. And so I got it and I, I'm sitting there eating on Christmas day for the first time, uh, probably since my grandmother passed away, yeah. eating a version of that salad. And it just takes me back. And yeah. I think the th- kind of the theological take on that is for me, I grew up in a religious tradition that said that uh, that communion, the Lord's Supper, as they called it, was just a reenactment. There was nothing mm. that really was happening here. Uh, we were just remembering this really important thing that that Christ did, uh, you know, 2000 years ago. Mm. And then coming into a liturgical tradition where we believe that it's it's the same thing that Christ did. Yeah, that that it's like eating broccoli salad. It's like ambrosia in that mm-hmm. it, it, it brings with it all of the, these memories. Yeah. Um, and, and the feeling of love uh, and, um, and it, and suddenly it no longer felt like as I'm sitting there at Dominica and I feel the same way with communion, it does not feel like a past event it feels like right. this very much this moment, which we believe in, right, in the Episcopal Church, right, of right. when time is transcended because everything comes across. Right. Past, present, and future all meet. Time and space uh, suspend. Yeah. Well, right. Like, just like we were talking about a couple of weeks ago, right, when we were doing our Bible study sermon prep. And we were talking about how it was for all saints, right? But we were talking about how communion is this meeting of the here and now with that liminal cloud of witnesses, right? But with, with like every single, you know, faithful person who has like celebrated communion or participated by, you know, taking communion, like throughout the ages, all the way back to Jesus and how it's like, and we were talking right about how during the pandemic, one of the things that so many of our, of our folks have been missing is communion. And I think not just because they really just want that wafer and a little sip of wine, but because, because there is something about that being a kind of like a holy and like liminal taste memory, if you will. Right. That it's, 
that it isn't just that you're eating the wafer, but when you do that in the presence of the community, you know, together, when you make that sacrament, that, that it does, it does taste right. Right. That it's right. I mean, if you ate a communion, the average communion wafer on its own, (laughs) terrible cracker. This is like (laughs) worse than the worst gluten-free. And I can say this is gluten-free, the worst (laughs) gluten-free cracker you've ever had in your life. And, uh, and yet it's so funny. I mean, we, we, uh, at Lent, uh, which isn't very Lenten, but for whatever reason we, we do this, uh, at Annunciation and and they'll make homemade bread, but it has like honey in it and everything. So in Mm. some ways it feels more like breaking the fast of Lent than actually, uh, you know, we're giving something up. But what's funny is that while some people really love that at the end of five weeks of that, people are yearning for that right. very familiar wafer. My wafer. Totally. Totally. It has nothing to do with the quality of the taste. Yeah. Cause it is not. No. You know. Yeah. It's yes. That is mm-hmm. a thing. <laughs> so, yeah. so I think the foods of obligation, that's why I asked Mike, like do, does his secretary's family eat the lutefisk because usually with foods of obligation you participate along with right whoever and it's usually a matriarch or patriarch that you know it's an important food to them and maybe some other people like it but it's it's pretty common to then uh that you just go ahead and participate in it that's it for episode two of this three-part series foods of obligation on share the love stories podcast I'm the Reverend Amelia Arthur. I hope you join us for part three as we wrap up Foods of Obligation. Take care, and until next time, keep sharing the love.